I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. Just a couple weeks ago, practically no one had heard of Oliver Anthony. Now, the Virginia-based country singer has the number one song on the Hot 100, Rich Men North of Richmond. And last night, that song was the subject of the first question of the Republican presidential primary debate. Moderator Martha McCollum said that Anthony's lyrics, quote, speak of alienation, a deep frustration with the state of government and of this country. I know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do, because your dollar ain't shit, and it's taxed to no And end. addressing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, she added, Washington, D.C. is about 100 miles north of Richmond. Why is this song striking such a nerve in this country right now? In his answer, DeSantis blamed Joe Biden, American decline, Hunter Biden's paintings, and congressional spending, but that's another story. We're going to try to provide our own answer to that question and talk about the deeply unusual rise of this song and this singer-songwriter. He definitely has real talent, and there's also some eyebrow-raising aspects to this story and this song. Oliver Anthony's real name is Christopher Anthony Lunsford. Oliver Anthony was his grandfather's name, and he said in a Facebook post that he uses it to honor him in his upbringing in 1930s Appalachia. The singer says he worked blue-collar and sales jobs since dropping out of high school and currently lives in a camper on a property he owns. He told Fox News he is neither a Republican nor a Democrat. And one of his songs, Dug On It, says both parties are, quote, full of crap. And Republicans, Democrats, Lord, I swear they're all just full of crap. That said, there are messages in Richmond North of Richmond that sure seem right-leaning, and that's definitely how right-wing influencers and politicians took it. Dan Bongino, Matt Walsh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Carrie Lake, and the proudly conservative country singer John Rich were all among its early boosters. So, inevitably, though there's more to the story, this seems at least partly like the latest chapter in the long saga of right-wing country songs. And Joseph Hudak and I just did an episode about that history, pegged to yet another right-wing song, Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town. And I have Joseph Hudak back for this episode. He was one of the first people to write about Richmond, north of Richmond, in a big outlet. And he took a lot of heat for pointing out that, at least in the beginning, right-wing influencers were absolutely boosting this song. Here's that conversation. This is the first time ever that we've done such a quick sequel to an episode. This is Right Wing Country Strikes Back is this episode. And then an interesting aspect of Right Wing Country is people weirdly on the right wing get mad when you call right wing country right wing country. That's a weird aspect of this. They don't want to... I could confirm that firsthand that people get angry. That has been my week. I'm inevitably getting ahead of myself here. The artist is Oliver Anthony. Talented guy can sing his ass off, plays a nice fingerstyle guitar. I like the way he plays. Oliver Anthony has a song called Rich Men North of Richmond. And good title. It's and it's a good title. A lot of mm-hmm. things are good. It's also got a he's got a very powerful red beard. I give him major beard props. And so a lot of things going for him. Nice resonator guitar, good mm-hmm. voice, but he he has this song and it has had an intensely, let me describe it neutrally, it has had an intensely viral launch, number one on the Billboard Hot 100. So I'm so glad that we are already on the right-wing country beat and that we have you to help explain what's going on. Now, the rise of this song is fraught with controversy and questions a little bit. You, of course, are Rolling Stone's country editor and uh, Mm -hmm. deeply embedded in this world. 
Had you ever heard of Oliver Anthony until a couple weeks ago? I have not. You and I are chatting today a week since I first heard of Oliver Anthony. And in that time, it has become the biggest story in music, I would think. Everyone that I have in my world and outside of it have been talking about this, and I think that's been the case for you. Yeah, so let's just kind of walk through what, what <laughs> happened. So last week, on that, it was a Friday, and I was doing my normal checking stuff out and happened upon this, this song, and what strikes you as soon as you hear Oliver Anthony sing is just the passion in his voice. He sounds like he has been through the ringer, and he is believing every single word that he is singing, which is a wonderful quality in any artist. And I think what also stood out is the bare bones quality of the recording. On August 1st, Oliver posts to TikTok a video that it seems like he shot himself of him performing Richmond North of Richmond. So that was on the 1st. On the 8th, a week later, uh, a video was uploaded to YouTube uh, of him performing that song. It was a different video. And this one was filmed by uh, an organization called Radio WV that spotlights uh, up-and-coming artists in Virginia, I do believe, and in the Appalachia area. So that was on the 8th. And so then on the 9th, there's still not much mention on Twitter, but then there's people start posting links to the TikTok and the YouTube. And so then on August 10th is when it really starts to blow up. And what happens is it's blowing up among let's just say, right-wing media personalities. So we see folks like Benny Johnson, Daily Caller, Matt Walsh. They're all tweeting about this song. And really, I don't want to say it was orchestrated, but it looks orchestrated. So somehow, maybe it was all in their world at that same time, and they just happened to all start tweeting about it. I don't know. That's up for others to decide. But it's, this was the situation. And so it became this enormous thing so that by the 11th, which was this past Friday, last Friday, I saw how big it was and I thought, wow, we need to write about this. And the angle that we took, which I stand by, is just reporting the facts. And the fact of the matter is <laughs> that this song was blowing up with right-wing media personalities and influencers. I'm not saying that liberals and Democrats or people people who don't even identify politically anyway weren't enchanted by the song and weren't listening to it. I'm just saying that the most vocal frenzy of this song, Rich Men North of Richmond, happened in the right-wing media sphere. And that was really fascinating to me. And so when we wrote our story, the headline that we used was right-wing influencers just found their favorite new country song. Indisputably factual. Yeah, uh, and, and I should note that the reason why you are defending your journalistic work here is well, you should. <laughs> and it really reading it is very funny because I'm reading it for the second time now. Sure, and it's really a, a very objective and fact based piece of journalism. You know, Brian, um, I thought so too. I didn't even review the song. Why one moment of amazement, I think, for me was the lyric about, I wish politicians would look out for minors, E-R, note the spelling there, M-I-N-E-R-S, and not just minors on an island somewhere, which was, it seemed to be an allusion to the disgraced, convicted sex offender, really terrible human being, Jeffrey Epstein, who had an island in the Caribbean where he was introducing underage girls to, to some powerful associates. Yeah. Terrible. Really. It's a yeah, terrible yeah, we, thing. 
Yeah, we agree you know? that's terrible. And, and I agree it's terrible that Donald Trump was so close with Jeffrey Epstein. So I agree with his condemnation of Donald Trump there. I think that was a sharp anti-Trump message <laughs> that maybe complicates whether it's left-wing or right-wing. But what happened was the whole right-wing media got extremely mad about your article, Joseph. They said that Rolling Stone is attacking this country artist by saying that right-wing influencers like him. The funny part is everyone got excited when really all we did was point out the facts. But here's the thing, right? The thing is this song is irresistible when you first hear it. When you hear someone playing this in another room, your ears perk up because again of that passionate quality in Oliver Anthony's voice. And I think that, and I know we're going to get into this, but I think that is the difference between this and what you and I spoke about a few weeks ago, which was Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean, where you and I determined that there's really no melody and no hook, and it's not really a catchy song. Perhaps it's a bad song. But when we got to this, Richmond, North of Richmond, that hook and the melody is immediately in your ear. And you find yourself inexplicably, I know I have, waking up with <laughs> God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. It's stuck in my head. I can't unhear it. So it's an earworm. So I think that's an interesting thing. And you and I can dig into that more, compare this with the Try That in a Small Town, because there is very interesting in terms of the success and how they differ in that respect. I sat here thinking while you were talking about what the reaction and responses that we've gotten when we actually have trashed a song or criticized a song or gave a bad review. And it was nothing to the level of what we're talking about now. And I wonder why that is, Brian. I wonder why, what is it about hearing that this song is a conservative type song that made a select few unhappy enough to email, write, troll us on various social media platforms, all of that stuff. What is that? And why didn't that happen when I wrote a bad review of some other song? It's fascinating, right? What is it? That, that too screams to me that there's something more out there. What is that quality? What is that orchestrated quality of, of my goodness, we need to rally and support this song? I don't know. It's fascinating, man. It really is. I can't believe it. There's a Simpsons episode, uh, old Simpsons episode, where they say that Gabo is going to come to town, and they don't know what Gabo is. Mm -hmm. But before Homer even knows who Gabo is, he says, he'll tell us what to do. And I'm not directly comparing the people who have never heard of this guy a week ago, and now they're his biggest fans and defenders. I'm not directly comparing them to Homer Simpson, but I am a little bit. Because they don't know. This guy just arrived and they're ready to defend him to the death. It strikes me as a little bizarre. I've never seen this level of instant fandom. I do think he is a little bit like the Gabo of, of country stars in that he mysteriously arrived and now he's just the new god of people. It's extraordinary. I've never seen anything happen this fast. It is really remarkable. And the thing is, too, there's not... It's like he has a bunch of songs out, but it's all all just him that it stuff that he's recorded with him and his guitar he has a song called virginia that's quite good he has i think the one that is his other calling card is called ain't got a dollar and that is also i believe his twitter handle um, sounds pretty good yeah totally you see what's happening right he's tapping in let's be honest here he's tapping into what a lot of americans feel country 
radio, mm-hmm. obviously, and you can speak to this much more authoritatively than I can, everything's become very produced, very either pop or, as we learned looking at the Jason Aldean song, pretty modern rock leaning, but the corporate radio butt rock <laughs> influence. That's what those were the main his main country influences were corporate radio butt rock. And so I think that this sort of stripped down sound, which as we'll discuss, is actually quite available if you go beyond the mainstream, I, to have it reach to have it reaching people who aren't going into the underground, I think lyrics aside, I do think that made some of the impression. Not just the arrangements, it also is an extremely rootsy vocal, melody, guitar picking. It's all, it's not sort of modern pop or rock influenced country. It's it's pretty, it's roots country, outlaw country stuff. And you could also very easily hear the lyrics, right? It's not over, it's not muddied by overproduction or anything. And I think that again, is that's what resonated with folks. They were able to hear these very honest sounds Sounding lyrics delivered so passionately. <laughs> you got that Deli- del- uh, delivered passionately by him. And I think that just cuts through the noise, right? When you hear someone singing with just their naked voice, immediately your ears perk up. There's no major music bed behind it. You're not hearing anything that's, it just feels, that's why country radio wants to play songs that all sound very similar because that way you just become in this, this trance, this hypnotic state. And you're like, oh, I'm not changing the station. Everything has the same meaning the same vibe and then that's why when you hear something that is not a song like that sometimes people are inclined to change the station they're like oh what is this it kind of changes where your head is so it's all it's all very intentional but to go back to him and like just let we will get into the lyrics i i think what's interesting is that he tapped into a moment look of course dude everything is overpriced right now the dollar does not have a lot of value mortgage rates for homes are absurd 7.2 i believe this week houses are so hard for people to buy especially for first-time buyers it's a mess right and so how, and then we have the healthcare issue we have an opioid crisis all of these things that are just terrifying and part of our dystopian reality these days and i think he cuts through and gets right to the fact of this idea that people are busting their ass to work and just survive. And the big line, and one of the lines that's been most praised really of this song is in the chorus where he says, living in the new world with an old soul. And and I think a lot, I, I really think that resonated with people. We can get into this idea of how the song became viral and what forces were at play or not at play that helped that happen. And I think there's a whole thing to talk about there. But I think ultimately, if that was the case, it worked. These normal, everyday folks started listening to this song. And to go back to the Jason Aldean comparison, when Try That in a Small Town hit number one on the Hot 100, it did so based on this orchestrated campaign of buying it and overly streaming it. And then the next week, it dropped from number one down to number 21 immediately. The difference with this song, assuming it goes number one, is that it appears that it's also at the top of the charts on the organic streaming charts on Spotify and on Apple Music. And that is not the case with Jason Aldean's song. If Jason Aldean's song went to number one with some help from a campaign to buy a bunch of downloads or to overly stream it or whatever they did, along with obvious organic listening, whatever they did is not 
the same as what happened with Richmond, north of Richmond, because there is absolutely an organic aspect to it now. I don't know about what happened on August 8th. I don't know about on August 1st, August 10th, right? When all this was the flurry here of those days. But right now it's connecting with people who are actively streaming it. And that to me is the most, one of the most interesting things about this. People are seeking him out, trying to give him all this money. He posted this response. So he wrote, people in the music industry give me blank stares when I brush off $8 million offers. I don't want six tour buses, 15 tractor trailers, and a jet. I don't want to play stadium shows. I don't want to be in the spotlight. I wrote the music I wrote because I was suffering with mental health and depression. These songs have connected with millions of people on such a deep level because they're being sung by someone feeling the words in the very moment they were sung. No editing, no agent, no bullshit, just some idiot in his guitar. The style of music that we should have never gotten away from in the first place. There's nothing special about me. I'm not a good musician. I actually disagree. I think you are a good musician. I'm not a very good person. I've spent the last five years struggling with mental health and using alcohol to drown it. I am sad to see the world in the state it's in with everyone fighting each other. I've spent many nights feeling hopeless that the greatest country on earth is quickly fading away. Uh, me too, actually. Unclear weather for the same reasons. But so it's interesting. So there is, I think the mistake some people made is there were implications that this song had been written for him by sort of some kind of like right-wing Max Martin figure. Yeah, I think there's no reason to believe that he didn't write it. If this was engineered in some think tank, I think that we would have, they would have figured out that it was box of fudge rounds and not bag. Little things like that. It feels like a song that, a dude who lives off the grid and sits and writes songs is writing because that's what he's experiencing in his day to day. I do agree with you. There's questions about how it got so viral so fast. And I think that's the real thing. If you look at, I, I think you were going to pull up some streaming numbers and chart numbers right now and look at it. And the difference between this song and the other songs that are below it on the Hot 100 right now is just striking. Didn't it start by hitting number one on the iTunes sales chart? The iTunes sales chart is where it first went number one, which frankly, because so few people download songs these days from iTunes, they stream instead of download and own the actual track. It doesn't take that many downloads on iTunes to get to the top of the iTunes number one chart. Yes. I think people are very confused about who, people who don't follow the music industry. The iTunes chart back in 2007 was a very big deal if you got number one in the iTunes chart, because that's where, for a moment, that's where the, if you wanted to get singles, that's where you got them. There were a lot of people at one point buying songs mm -hmm. at iTunes. But in case people don't know, streaming is now the by far the predominant means of music listening. As you said, the iTunes chart is kind of a relic. No one really buys songs, except they, they have been. There was a campaign, as you said, to get Jason Aldean to number one. And you know it should be noted, sorry, missing point here, sure. that when Billboard calculates its Hot 100 songs chart, iTunes sales are counted more than streams. That was why people had this campaign to buy the Jason Aldean song and get it to number one. Now, one of the first signs that something was really happening with Oliver Anthony is that this song did land at number one on the iTunes chart, which can be done. It doesn't take that many sales to get to number one, as you said. Do we, have no. that, do we have that number? Yes, we have that data. Luminate, which is a data tracking service from Friday, August 11th through Monday, August 14th, Richmond, north of Richmond, had 
nearly 100,000 digital song sales. 98,000 was the number then, but nearly 100,000. And its streams were 7.8 million streams. That is a huge number of downloads. If we look in that same time frame, Morgan Wallen's song Last Night, which is like the biggest, one of the biggest songs of the year, had 13 million streams, but only a little over 3,000 digital sales. So look at the difference. Morgan Wallen had 3,000 digital download, digital sales. Richmond, north of Richmond, had 98,000. Here's the question. And again, just asking it, was that an organic download campaign? Did people love the song so much that they went to iTunes and bought 98,000 copies of that song? What do you think, Brian? Yeah, no, I don't know. There may be some kind of orchestrated element that it could be that people that there's an older audience who doesn't understand about streaming and is and thinks that's still how you get a song. That could be an element of this. Yeah, it could be, but it I don't know. It still takes listen, it takes it sounds silly to think, but it does take effort to go open iTunes, find a song and download it. What compels someone to do things? Some people are too, not even compelled enough to open open Spotify for the day, and yet you're going to go and download it. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. Listen, one way or the other, it speaks to the resonance of this song. The fact that people, even if only half of that, let's just say half of that, that's still a, a 50,000 downloads is a lot of downloads for only a couple days for one song. If someone was trying to game the system, you, it would be good to have such an outsized number of, even though that's way more than you need to top the iTunes sales chart, it still would be to your benefit to have that many because of the formula. Because if you're trying to game the chart, you have to outweigh the fact that unlike the almost all the other songs in the top 10, there's no radio play. So right. you have to go heavy on the downloads. But the idea that someone spent $100,000... Who knows? <laughs> who knows? So... There's a guy named the MAGA Hulk. This is the territory we're in. There's a guy named the MAGA Hulk, and he had a tweet that pointed out the involvement of a gentleman named Jason Howerton, who is CEO of a company called Reach Digital. And here's how Dan Bongino replied to that tweet by the MAGA Hulk. Jason works with me. Jason is a great guy who texted me last week, blown away by the emotion of Oliver's song. Jason wanted to help. He flew from California to North Carolina to help Oliver get the message out. Yes, period. That's what he does. He uses digital platforms to spread the word, mine included. This fucking moron below doesn't have a clue about what happened. Imbeciles like this fucker below are what decimate our movement. They open their big mouths about shit they have no idea about while sitting on their fat asses criticizing the doers. It's weird because it's an amazing tweet because Dan Bongino seems to confirm that his virality guy was a major player in getting Oliver Anthony to the masses. But I should mention that Jason Howerton himself has disputed the extent of his involvement in the rise of Oliver Anthony. On his LinkedIn profile, he says he helps media companies and political influencers grow their social media footprint. He was formerly executive director of The Blaze, a news site started by Glenn Beck. But Howerton posted on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, that he objected to The Washington Post calling him a right-wing journalist and said, quote, my views, which are no one's business, run the gamut. I hold opinions I hold opinions that would piss someone off in every circle. But I get it. Right wing is the new label for anything or anyone that needs to be discredited a little. He also wrote, I'm incredibly flattered that you all think I am capable of manufacturing a once-in-a-decade viral moment. Truly, quite the compliment. 
Oliver could have posted that song on MySpace and would have found a way to go viral. Y'all need to touch grass. So overall, we don't know what happened. We don't know to what extent, if any, this whole thing was astroturfed at the beginning. You should explain what astroturfing is for yes. people. Astro- may not so a- astroturfing is a political term. It's a great term because it comes from the idea of grassroots. And what's astroturf? It's fake grass, right? Mm-hmm. So the astroturfing is when you make it look like there's a grassroots movement behind someone and actually it's fake. And that's what that at some point, as you said, it's like Pinocchio it became real. That's exactly the, right. That's the, exactly right. The, the, it's in part because there actually is some musical uh, substance here. Absolutely. But, but we don't, the degree to which this was astroturfed at the beginning and why. So it's weird. It's the whole, the whole thing is extremely peculiar. It's really hard to understand what happened here. And we haven't seen anything like it. I would say it's nearly unprecedented. The fact that he's coming out of nowhere and is about to have the number one song in the country, how it happened. It's all, it's all very much a head scratcher. A lot of people that I've talked to experts in this field and what we do in music, they all said the same thing that they just can't wrap their head around. It. But a lot of them also have said to me, yeah, I think something's going on there. So they don't know. There's just some weird, but just doesn't all entirely add up yet. There's a great meme going around though that I laughed at. It was Marjorie Taylor Greene and it said, sees Tyler Childers video. And then the quote from her is release the Oliver Anthony. And so for folks who haven't seen Tyler Childers video for his song, In Your Love. We were never made to run. It is a, just a gorgeous cinematic tale of a love story between two men, two coal miners in 1950s Appalachia. And Tyler has, he's constantly challenged his fans, which is just amazing to watch. When he put out Long Violent History, his song from a few years ago at the height of George Floyd protests, he spoke out about Black Lives Matter and asked his listeners to put themselves in the shoes of people who have been beaten down and targeted and unjustly persecuted. And it was just a striking video. I was more struck by that video than even the song when he did this. And so when he put out this video for In Your Love to have two, to tell the love story between two men in Appalachia and depict that on screen just so elegantly as he did, I think a lot of fans too may have been like, huh, not into it, right? And so then we have, right, a few weeks later, here comes Oliver Anthony with this very populist song you know so that's one of the tinfoil hat theories out there is it's like oh yeah tyler childers put out a video with gay coal miners where do you watch this so like an alternative to that do i believe it and eh, who knows but it's funny right maybe that goes back to your question brian of asking like how did this happen or what who is this speaking to you know maybe it's speaking to people who you know were fans uh, who want to be- who want the people they listen to to have the same beliefs and message that they do Maybe that's. I think that is it, and I think that yeah, it's pretty clearly it's it was propelled by right wing influencers to right wing mm-hmm. audiences. That's what happened. I don't to go back to the beginning. It, it seems there's a weird uh, objection to that every time that we do a story on someone like Jason Isbell, Tyler Childers, Zach Bryan for a while, Chris Stapleton too. Stapleton is still just a huge audience. Like these would be monster stories, for, and everyone wanted to read about them, but never in my time covering those artists have i seen what we're seeing with oliver anthony and that also raises questions for me here's one song by one guy that blew up like this whereas you have all of these 
just a whole catalog of artists like Tyler and Stapleton and such. And I haven't seen this level of blow up. An interesting thing to put this in context of is I was just talking with Andre G last week about this idea that across genres, we started with hip hop, but it goes to pop too, that there's it's so much harder to break new artists, or so mm-hmm. we thought last week. <laughs> we were saying that as of last week, it seems so much harder than it ever was to break new artists. But I will say there's something about the right-wing media ecosystem where it's like a mini monoculture, right? What we've seen since the rise of Fox News and then the rise of other sort of micro-targeted right-wing influencers and media outlets Mm -hmm. is that taking one's views out of it, there is absolutely no doubt that the right-wing media is very skilled at propelling one angle of a story into prominence, a meme or one an embarrassing quote from Barack Obama or whatever it is, they right. know how to seize together on something and bring it to prominence. And what's very funny is that we haven't seen until recently this ability, they've gamed out how to unify people's attention around one thing. In the past, it hasn't been entertainment products. Mm-hmm. Think with Try That in a Small Town and maybe some other things involving movies. And now this, we're seeing that the only remaining viable monoculture-like promotional outlet is the right-wing media. And it's possible that the rest of media just needs to learn from them. It's going to be funny to see big A&R guys from Universal stuff go to Dan Bongino's virality guy and oh ask him how the hell to promote a song. Because clearly, say what yeah. you want. <laughs> yeah. If he knew how, if he did indeed do it, he knew what he was doing. But even beyond this one guy and whatever, but sure. clear, clearly... This media knows how to focus on something and make it rise through the noise. And that's what the rest of media maybe isn't as good at anymore. So I think that's taking one's opinions out of it. I think that's part of what's happening is that they're realizing their power. And it, it's also interesting to see that the number one song in the country becoming this sort of contested terrain culture war thing. Yeah. And I think we're going to see it's this thing that people can fight over. I've only seen BTS ARMY and stuff try to get a song to number one. I've never seen someone say, this artist is progressive, let's get it to number one. And I don't think that same passion will ever come on the left. And we're really going to have to look where we're at a week from now, and let's see where the song is two weeks from now. And if it's still performing well, and it's still especially streaming, then we're going to know that this is a phenomenon driven by people who want to listen to it. Whatever happened at the beginning, that helped push it along. Who knows? But I think right now it's a popular tune and a couple of weeks from now it may still be. So we'll see if it's got legs. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. So the lyrics to Oliver Anthony's yeah. Rich Men of Richmond, and this is what I'll say, man. It's like I'm afraid that had there's two things that I think this song would be much better if it didn't have these kind of inflammatory sort of liberal baiting lines in it. I think it would be a stronger work of art. I also don't think it would have had this rise. So what I'm afraid of, I'm not even afraid because I don't, it's nothing to be afraid of. What some of the commentators think is that Rolling Stone, the entity, is very scared of this. I don't think it's anything to be scared of. I just think it's a mild shame. Let me put it that way. How about that? It's a mild, <laughs> and it's truly, I think it's a mild shame that, that, the, that people have now learned that if you have sort of a liberal baiting element to your song, you're likely to have a pathway to seemingly number one. So I think that this is the lesson they're learning. And so it starts out with, there's stuff that's just populist and nothing wrong with complaining about your taxes. It's an angle I haven't heard that much. I don't. I feel like people don't complain about their taxes as much. Pre-Reagan, there really was reason to complain about your taxes. Back then, the taxes were much higher. Even from Republican candidates, the sort of tax thing you don't hear as much anymore. It's not the number one message. So it's interesting, actually, a throwback. I thought it was interesting in the, especially in the same kind of historical perspective we were taking in the last episode, to hear that tax angle sort of revived is interesting to me. And as far as the Epstein reference, like that's not an anti-democrat thing, because all joking aside, I mean that it, oh. Donald Trump was Donald Trump is the one who's was pictured dancing alongside Epstein at a party, chatting in a friendly manner. Epstein yeah. was did have some ties to Clinton, so I could did, see where. Yeah, absolutely, there were some ties to Bill Clinton. There were ties to Donald Trump. In fact, that is a middle of the road statement. I think it's a fair shot, to be honest. Godspeed to his Jeffrey Epstein attacks, but yeah, I think what's unfortunate. And it's also, listen, it, there's this idea, this attack on the, quote, obese milking welfare <laughs> and this, the, right. that if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought to not pay for your bags of fudge rounds. And sure, I, it just feels a little gratuitous and it feels like it, it's drawing on, you know, interestingly, we talked, I, I love that we have this context. There was a song that Nixon loved, the Welfare Cadillac. Just now whooped another piece of that old tar roof and off the back. Sure hope it don't skin up that new Cadillac. Absolutely. Uh, it seems to have maybe introduced or drawn on the idea that there were what people would later call on the right, they would call welfare queens and this idea, false idea really, that there were just tons of people somehow living large on their welfare checks. The song right. was... Welfare Cadillac by a singer named Guy Drake. And it's all about, it's from the point of view of someone who's poverty stricken, but somehow has a Cadillac. Weirdly, just we're learning that time is a flat circle when it comes to country music because he's back on the same theme. And I just think it's, I think that's what people react to. I think people heard a racial subtext in there as well. I mean, that certainly in the popular imagination of attacks on welfare recipients, they've, all, they've often been 
black. And so I think people heard that. But to be fair, there's nothing explicitly racial there. But certainly, if you look at the history of attacks of, on the welfare system, on the welfare yeah. system, it, it, there's often elements, a racial element to it. And look, it should be noted, criticisms of his lyrics aside, that Oliver Anthony told Fox News that America is, quote, the melting pot of the world and said that diversity makes us strong. And to his credit, that really made some racists on Twitter mad. Man, I was, I was out for drinks last night with some songwriters here in town. And we were talking about this song, of course, because, again, it's everywhere and you can't escape it. And they were saying, like, their rule in songwriting is you're only allowed to punch in two directions. And that's up or in. You can't punch out and you can't punch, punch down. And I think what a lot of the criticism as we get into the latter half of this song, Richmond North of Richmond, is that the lyrics are punching down. You're punching down at people who are poor. You're punching down at people who may be overweight. You're punching down at people who do not have the means to survive without without government assistance. And that's the sad part of it, because as I've read, and there were some really astute comments online, I have to say, some folks commented that he really started off strong with this song. And I think that first line, I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, that's the clarion call. People are just like, whoa, your ears perk up and you're all like, wow, I can, I relate to that, whoever that is, I relate to that, my hands are busted, I've just worked way too much and I'm barely scraping by. And that's right, you're sympathized with the blue collar class, with the people who have it hard and have to really work for a living. And then what was so odd is that after sympathizing and rallying and being with them, he then turns around and punches down at them with the welfare line. And so at one point you're lifting up the poor, on another point you're blasting them. And I wish that was my original point, my original idea, but I've seen people say that online. He says, Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat. And the obese milk and welfare. So somehow this idea that, I think it's just kind of a confused idea. So he's saying that the welfare state should help those people and not the obese. I don't know why the people on the street aren't, don't have access to food stamps because they, they should, they do technically under the system. So I don't know what he's talking about because he hasn't broken down his views here. And it can also get a little bit silly to, uh, to parse lyrics to this extent, but we're forced to given this, all this discourse. I think it's kind of a nonsense complaint, to be honest, because the food stamp system would cover someone who is homeless, or it should. And the only people who are against that, as far as I know, are people like Dan Bongino, who want to eliminate the welfare state. So I'm very confused. When, when, the more you look into it, the more confusing it is. And so it just starts to seem like a gratuitous attack on the obese or receiving government benefits. He wants nationalized health care to cover Ozempic for <laughs> obese welfare recipients. Ozempic. And that's what he's trying to yes. say. It's exactly yeah, what I, it's I, an I Ozempic think, ad. I think, I, think, I think what he's trying to say is that he wants, he, he wants Obamacare to provide weight loss drugs to the poor, which I, I think is an admirable message, just like his, the anti-Trump <laughs> message. So I, I think I don't really see a problem here. Brian, I see but, what you're doing. We need yeah. to address this though really quickly, because it's funny. A yeah. lot of folks have pointed out that fudge rounds actually come in a box and not in a bag. So huh. why did, what was the choice to use bags of fudge rounds and not box? I don't know. Maybe it's a reference to Yellow Leadbetter, where he sings, "Is it a box or a bag?" I think, that's a, <laughs> I think a, you're, I think you're ascribing too much meaning to that. If that's the case, no, I think it's a kind of just a deep cut Easter egg. 
for yeah, pearls there you go. So there I you appreciate go. That. Exactly what it is. Yeah. Now, little Debbie, man. Little Debbie is like Big Debbie. It's like Big Pharma, right? Little Debbie. Big Snack is funding this song, I think. So, yeah. So I think it's just, it's, I think it's, I think that stuff is just gratuitous, but I also wonder mm-hmm. if it wasn't in there, if the song was as, would be as big. That's a really great question. I don't know. I, I wish we did know. I wonder what it would be, or would it resonate with the folks it's resonating with? Maybe that's the question. Hey, Lexan, let's talk a bit about the idea of also musically and stylistically what make also what makes him so popular. But the record labels see what's happening with Zach Bryan. They see the popularity of Tyler Childers. They see artists who have a fan base organically. There's some artists out there like Charles Wesley Godwin, guys like that who are really developing a, a following organically and singing with the same sort of gusto that Oliver Anthony is and that type of stripped down songwriting. And I think everyone wants to sign that next big thing. A couple of years ago, everyone's trying to sign the next Bro Country Act, right? And then everyone was trying to sign the next Chris Stapleton. Now we've found this fascination with the rural mountain men, let's call it. And they're trying to to do that. Guys with beards and playing stripped down songs. And so there's, a, there's definitely a... The industry is complicit in this in some way because they're looking for that sort of thing. And so maybe this, if you went down that rabbit hole and put on your tinfoil hat, and thought about why is this, why is Oliver Anthony checking all the boxes? There's a lot there. Recommend a few songs for people. What's good out there? You mentioned a couple artists. Yeah. Let me look while we do this. We can pause there and I'll find my list because there was some good stuff. But people are looking for stripped down type stuff and obviously listen to Tyler Childers. I think Brent Cobb is wonderful. Rhiannon Giddens is wonderful. Charlie Crockett, of course. Gosh, he's just blowing up right now. There's a bunch of other artists who fit the bill. But also, let me just say, too, if Oliver Anthony's your thing, listen to it. There's other songs that are not this song that have not caused this sense of polarization for whatever reason. But as you and I admitted, Brian, he sings really well, and he's got a unique style of playing. It's fascinating. There's no reason to not listen to him. But I think here's the thing that's most important, is this song, what raised the eyebrow for me was the fact that this song was being co-opted by a particular subset of media personality that has been known to sometimes mislead their audiences. I'm being awfully generous and kind there when I say all that, but I believe that is what caused, I believe that's why they were attracted to it. It helped steer, it helped deliver a message that they've always been trying to sell. They've tried to do it with film and whatnot, and it hasn't worked as well as it does with music because music is so instantly identifiable and it gets right to your soul. And I think that's what happened. I think Hang on a second. I think, yeah, I think the reason that it had to be noted, the reason it had to be noted that this was resonating among right-wing media types and influencers is because they speak to a specific audience that in the past they have misled or given red meat to, as they say. And I think that's what raised the eyebrow for me and made me wonder, what's the intention behind this? And why? what about this song attracted right-wing influencers? And I think you and I answered some of that by looking at the lyrics. The rich men north of Richmond, Lord knows they all want to have total control, want to know what you think, want to know what you do. That's, that's pretty conspiratorial, I got to say. It strikes me as paranoid, I got to say. And we'll leave off John Rich, who we've talked about before. Oh, yes. John Rich, unlike unlike other people, I don't think has any problem 
being described as a conservative, no, <laughs> an open, an open and proud conservative, you might say. <laughs> he has a new, he has a new song. He's trying to do, he's trying to do another uh, right wing hit himself. He is. It's called "I'm Offended." And it was funny. I watched the video today. It's all your typical tropes. A guy getting laughed at for wearing a mask. Uh, he's wearing a shirt that says beta male. It's, it's this idea that guys aren't masculine if they're wearing a mask. And he's drinking a beer that says sissy beer. And yeah, just all kinds of very played for humor in the video. I'll give him that type of stereotypes of what it means to be a caring, compassionate human being, perhaps by wearing a mask for your fellow citizens. But yeah, it's all about the hair triggers that offend folks these days. And it's funny. I laughed when Mike Lindell came out of the came out of the elevator. I thought that was a funny thing. Weird funny, but funny nonetheless. Yeah, and Two Foot Fred is back, who old fans of Big and Rich and the Music Mafia. Two Foot Fred, little cameo in the John Rich video. But yeah, man, look, let's be honest here. He's doing exactly what we're talking about earlier, surmising about Richmond or the Richmond, where John Rich is actually doing it overtly. He's loading this song and the video with things that he thinks will elicit liberal tears as they like to say. Yes. And I will say that we talked about the idea that the right and the left are Streisand affecting each other by getting mm -hmm. outraged about these things and thus bringing them into the culture war prominence and thus getting them more attention and making them bigger hits. I think what's interesting actually about Oliver Anthony is there wasn't really, I wouldn't say liberals weren't, there was a lot more offense taken, I would say, over Try That in a Small Town. One of the reasons that they so vociferously tore into your report on this song is they were waiting for the quote-unquote liberal outrage. And you I think were the, that's exactly right. You were the best proxy for that. I, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point, I think. And it's funny, too, to say what you were just saying there. It's like the liberal side wasn't particularly angry over this song. No, There was no outrage, really. The outrage came from the right by being called right-wing influencers, by pointing out, I should say, that right-wing media types like this song. But yeah, by proxy, it was our story. I think we were among the first majors to hit it. And because of that, it went everywhere and we caught the brunt of that. So I, I thought there was a smart piece in the Washington Post, just calmly, no, no liberal outrage there, just calmly pointing out that the reason the right-wingers embraced it is because his concern, his, the things he's concerned about are, of course, genuine, but the targets he blamed for it seem, as people on the left would see, it seem wrongheaded. So this is what the Washington Post said. Its message is that the, Greg Sargent at the Washington Post, its message is that the overworked and underpaid should blame their plight largely on high taxes, welfare cheats, and cultural elites monitoring their thoughts for any departure from woke orthodoxy. Anyway, Joseph, a complicated thing. A complicated it's, thing, indeed. And uh, who, who knows? It could be it could be worse. We'll see what they try next. In the end, it, yeah. listen, in the end, it may just be that people really like the song. And we'll see what the next few weeks bring. Thanks for yeah, having me. Yeah, thanks. Dan Bongino, tell us what the next number one will be. Uh, <laughs> since you're the arbiter of things, Dan Bongino, a nation turns its lonely eyes to you. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated but as always thanks for listening and we will see you next week welcome
time to talk, Bill. <laughs> the Ultimate Smallville Rewatch Podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although, I didn't really work with her a lot. But, Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.